Well, we are ending our summer series on the Ten Commandments, Jesus and the X. And so, as Jordan said, next week's going to be our reflection service. That'll be a great time for us to hear and learn from one another. Uh, but today, we wrap it up by looking at the Tenth Commandment, and it is a commandment against coveting. So, if you already have your Bibles open, we're going to take a read of it. It's Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. Moses simply writes this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You stop to think about it. This is a really interesting way to end the Ten Commandments, isn't it? I mean, it starts off with commandment one, that God above all, He should be for all things, and then it ends with a commandment not to be looking too hard at your neighbor's oxen. You, when, you, when you look at that, you kind of wonder, does Moses lack a sense of suspense? Does he not know how to build to a climax? I mean, think of the momentum we've had in the last several weeks. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. And then to top it all off, don't look at that sleek donkey next door. Right? You stop to think about it. Why is the Ten Commandments in this order? I mean, surely in the, the order of things that are wrong, murder and adultery would be more climactic, certainly more than covetousness, right? Well, maybe not. Now, clearly, Moses does give us some concrete examples of what not to covet, but the phrase there, not to covet anything that is your neighbor's, helps us realize that really what he's talking about has really nothing to do with property, animals, or things of that nature at all. It is the impulse to covet itself. In other words, the Ten Commandment is a reminder to us of the really inward nature of God's law. Covetousness is about the human heart. It's about the desires in our heart. Have you noticed, with the exception of commandment one and the one we're looking at today, all of the commandments can be monitored or controlled or observed externally. You can see when the commandments are being violated, but you can't see the desires in someone's heart. Now, you can't. You can see that desire if it erupts into some kind of action, and that itself is a very important part, point that the Bible teaches us that the desires that are in our hearts sooner or later will result in the actions of our hands. And so, this is a reminder that God's law is not merely interested in our external behaviors, but is interested in our hearts. And there's no clearer picture into the human heart than the desires that fill it. And so, in some sense, this last command, commandment 10, really brings us full circle back to the first commandment. See, the reason we violate the first commandment and place something before God is because we have violated the tenth commandment and we desire something more than God. The reason we desire something more than God is because we have put something before God in our hearts. You see, commandment one and commandment ten, they kind of act as these kind of diagnostic bookends for our own lives. Do you want to know if you have, if you're a Christian, if you have something in your heart before God, in your life before God, then just see if there's things you covet in your heart and that will give you your answer. 
And that's how these commandments work. So this morning, we want to wrap up our study by looking at this last command and really tie up the series by looking at Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of these commands. And we're going to do this in three ways, three points this morning. Again, the command itself, the significance of the command, and then moving from coveting to trusting. And so that's how we're going to look at it. So number one, the command itself. First of all, we just need to get this out on the table, uh, and this is pretty obvious, but we don't tend to use this word in our modern vocabulary that often. As a matter of fact, I was trying to think of an example of people using this word And ironically enough, the only example I could think of of people using the word covet is in a church setting, you know, as in, I covet your prayers, right? But but nobody really talks, uses this word very commonly because we know that it means it's referring to the desires of our hearts. Coveting is about desires. Now, to be clear, it's not talking about the kinds of desires that are right and good that we should have, the desire to work and provide for my family, the desire to do well in my academic pursuits, the desire to connect with people in community, the desire to be useful and productive for the people around me. That's not what the Tenth Commandment is talking about. That's not what covetousness is. Covetousness is this this kind of desire that is fueled by a lustfulness or an inordinate desire. If you remember our study in the book of Philippians, we talked about inordinate desires. The actual word here in Exodus 20 is the Hebrew word chamad. It is helpfully translated in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, by a word that's common to us, that's familiar to us by now. It's the word epithumia, desire. But as we learned in Philippians, it's not just regular old rank and file desire, epithumia, this is an over-desire. The command here in Exodus 20, chamad, the Hebrew word is epithumia that we see all through the New Testament. It is a yearning, a longing, an envy for something that is not yours and therefore is not right for you to have. To give you a sense of how this word functions in the Old Testament, let me quote a very familiar text, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. It's when Adam and Eve are considering obedience to God or choosing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So what's being forbidden in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, is not just longing or yearning or desiring for something that is not ours. It's forbidding any impulse that would drive someone, draw someone away from contentedly serving in the station and situation that God has placed them in. In other words, covetousness, these covetous desires reveal a fundamental lack of contentment in what God may be doing in our lives. So the command here in the Ten Commandments in the Decalogue is a command to fight against this sinful desire to have what God, for whatever reason, in His good providence, has chosen not to give to you. So that's the command. Now we need to think a little bit about the significance of this command. That's the second point. The significance of covetousness is quite profound. You could say that what makes covetousness so dangerous is that covetousness is the sin behind all these other sins. 
So to give an example of that, we see in the book of Judges, or excuse me, Joshua, when the children of Israel are taking over the promised land, God commits one city, the city of Ai, to be uh, uh, the spoils to him, kind of like an offering to God, and the Israelites were to take none of it, except the man named Achan could not resist the lustful desires for the spoil. And so we see in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, when they confront Achan, he says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, a Tommy Hilfiger jacket maybe he saw, right? 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I mean, it sounds so ancient to us, but I saw this great outfit at H&M and an Apple Watch, and I, I coveted them. I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth besides my tent with the silver underneath. So covetousness was driven, was underneath the desire, and he he sinned, he stole. Covetousness is the sin behind the sin of adultery and murder. Like we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when David coveted in his heart when he saw Bathsheba and committed adultery with her. And then coveted in his heart to not have his reputation stained, and then he murdered Uriah. What makes covetousness so dangerous, it is the sin behind the sin. Friends, when you think about it, isn't every sinful deed the fruit, the result of a sinful desire? That's what James tells us. James chapter 1, verse 14 and following, James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The same word there as it is in Exodus. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, one of the huge problems of covetousness, one of the huge problems with it, it it has this ability to blind us to the things that we already have and yet give us eagle-eyed vision for the things we don't. And because of this blinding and simultaneously focusing ability of covetousness, it it pulls us into like a, a psychological vortex of unsatisfied needs. Friends, that's a that's a horrible way to go through life. Always wanting what you do not have, never satisfied with what you do. You see, the Bible tells us that the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the heart are never satisfied. So Franklin or Benjamin Franklin wisely said, contentment makes poor men rich, while discontentment makes rich men poor. Friends, have you ever thought that one of the most deceptive phrases in the English language is directly tied to covetousness? You may have heard the phrase, maybe you've even used it this week, this month, if only. It's two words. If only I had more money. If only I had a better place to live. If only I had a, a different job. If only I had an understanding spouse. If only I didn't have this debt. If only, if only, if only. Friends, once we believe our true problem is what we don't have, we've begun down the path of covetousness. Another generation ago, billionaire Rockefeller was asked, how much money does a man need to be satisfied? Only a little bit more. This covetousness, this lustful desire, though, it's, it's not just about material goods and items. That's what makes it so deceptive. Oftentimes, it's about things much more significant and profound and subtle. 
Sometimes we're discontent with our, our physical station in life. If only I was smarter, better looking, taller, thinner, bigger, people would like me, people would love me, people would respect me more. If only I wasn't in this situation, I could be more effective for God. If only others would recognize my gifts and my talents, I'd be more content. Sometimes it's not just our physical station in life, it might be just our overall situation. Singles think being married is the key. If only I could be married to someone, then I'd be happy. Then they get married and they think, if only I had a more understanding spouse or a different spouse, I'd be happy then. If only, if only, if only. Friends, as long as we continue to see the source of our dissatisfaction connected to the things of this world and not an issue of the heart, we will always find things to make us miserable. As long as we see dissatisfaction in our lives connected to the things of this world and we don't recognize it as a problem of the human heart, you will always find something to make yourself miserable. If you are a Christian, the problem is not what you do not have. The problem is you do not realize what you already have. The Bible makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that in Christ you have every spiritual blessing. But the problem with that in our, our rationalistic world is we hear the word spiritual and we think really not real or kind of ambiguous or whatever, some other thing. But according to the Bible, 2 Corinthians 4.18, the things of the Spirit are reality, and the things we bump up against every day isn't the reality. They're temporal. They're going away. And so when Paul says in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing, that's a comprehensive thing. Our problem is not on the outside. The problem is on the inside. Therefore, the answer is not getting more of what you think you need because that's not the problem. Some of you remember the name um, Chuck Swindoll. I used to listen to him a lot when I became an early Christian. We call him the Sermonator because he was so good. Uh, <laughs> he, and he even had a picture of him on a motorcycle. I don't know if you guys see, saw, saw that photo, but he, he said this, it was a poem, and I always remembered it, so I, I, I listened to it and wrote it down. Gets to our point perfectly. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. <laughs> I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over and I never got what I wanted. Friends, covetousness is the hunger that is never going to be satisfied regardless of how much you try to feed it. Now, we might be tempted to think, said, okay, then does that mean the solution is we just stop the desiring? You know, we kind of take a, an Eastern view, a Buddhist, a Buddhist view that the problem is desire, so the solution is get rid of desires. Number one, that is not a satisfactory answer. Number two, that's just not how we as human beings function. We were made by God to have desires. And that's just not how it works. We just stop thinking about it. You just can't stop these things. Thought experiment. Don't think of the beach. What'd you think of? 
right? It's just so just saying, okay, the answer is stop desiring doesn't work because we were made by God to desire things. The problem is not that our desires are too strong. As C.S. Lewis says, the problem is our desires are actually too weak. So I read um, his essay, The Weight of Glory, this week, and it's just brilliant. Listen to what Lewis says. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. So like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, you realize that in the Bible, the Bible promises us that God says, I want to give you life, I want to give you joy, I want to give you pleasure. One of my favorite Bible verses, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the pathway of life. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Joy, life, pleasure. That sounds like a good deal. But see, here's the problem. Sin has not only destroyed our definition or understanding of what life and joy and pleasure is, it has wrecked our ability to even understand how to get them into our lives. Listen, listen to what Lewis says. The faint, and I have to interpret this because he's so brilliant that some of his sentences are so dense. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the world are what we now call physical pleasures and even thus filtered. They are too much for our present management. What's he saying? What he's saying is that all the things of this life, the, the things that we touch and smell and taste and feel that are just, we call pleasures that are so intoxicating to us. They're just like the, the residual, residual awesomeness of God's rapture when He created matter and existence and life. Everything that we just freak out about about life, they're just like the dust, the sawdust of after Him making it. That's what He's saying. And even then, we can't handle them. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? I mean, this is how awesome physical pleasures are now, and this is just like the sawdust, the, the, the residual. What's it going to be like to be at the fountainhead when you just have it all given to you? Yet that, I believe is what lies before us. See, Lewis, he didn't make this up. He's just quoting a verse from the Bible. Now, Lewis was more flowery about it and, and more of a, a, an academic poet than Paul, probably, but he got this from Paul. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. He's saying exactly, this is, what Lewis, this is where Lewis got it from. 
Paul's saying, listen, you have not seen, you have not heard, it hasn't even come into the heart of your imaginations what God has prepared for those who love him and trust him. So we hear that and we want to say, well, how do we get that? If covetousness shows that, that's what we're longing for, and we're, but because of sin, we're pursuing all the wrong things, how do I align my desires with this reality? That's our last point, from coveting to trusting. If you go in your passage in, in Exodus 20, what's interesting is the first a few verses after the Ten Commandments are given. Let me read you those four verses. Uh, so the Tenth Commandment is given, is given in verse 17, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off, verse 19, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. They were terribly afraid, and rightly so. They were afraid on a number of levels. As we continue to read Exodus and, and, the, and the Leviticus and the rest of the Pentateuch, one of the reasons they were terribly afraid is that they knew if this is the law, they, the Israelites, would fail. They knew that Moses would fail, and he did. And every prophet, every priest, every king that would follow would fail. Nobody could keep this law. Only the great mediator, the true prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, succeeded in keeping the law. You see, the Ten Commandments, as we've seen in our study, has constantly been pointing us and revealing us and pushing us to Jesus Christ precisely by revealing to us that we do not have the righteousness in ourselves. It is simply not possible. See, the Ten Commandments is not some kind of cruel joke that God says, hey, do you want to be in my paradise eternally, joy, life, pleasures? Well, then here's what you have to do. Psych, you can never do it, right? That's not what the Ten Commandments are. They are a kindness from God for two reasons. Number one, it shows our absolute failure in no uncertain terms. Friends, you don't go a week without violating one of the Ten Commandments. Don't go a day without violating them. You don't go a month without violating all ten. As we've learned in our series, it's not murder, it's not the adultery. Jesus expanded it and took it right into our hearts and talked about the anger and lust. We are failing this thing miserably. So the Ten Commandments goes to show us our failure, and by doing this, number two, it makes us realize how truly desperate the situation is. Don't be a religious person and feel like, oh, I'm going to just then earn it. That's not the point. It was to show you, you cannot do this. Without which, without realizing this, we would believe the false notion that we can fix our situations in a fallen and terribly broken world. The Ten Commandments were given to us to show us that we cannot do it. You cannot save yourself. You cannot fix this situation. And friends, what is coveting other than our sinful hearts thinking we can fix our situation and get ourselves out of a jam if we only can do get something we need, think we need? What is covetousness than our hearts telling us we can save ourselves because this is what the solution is? So we want to save ourselves from a difficult marriage 
So we covet another man or woman rather than trusting God as He reveals the sinfulness of our hearts in the context of a relationship that's committed to you. We want to save ourselves from financial difficulties, so we covet money or the next promotion rather than trusting God to meet our need in the present circumstances, circumstance and with those limitations. We want to save ourselves from insignificance, so we covet other people's respect and prestige rather than trusting in God's love as our sole source of our identity. We want to save ourselves from being alone, and so we covet relationships and compromise our standards and get into relationships we shouldn't rather than trusting God and His good plan for us, even if it's hard, even if we don't like it. The gospel message is that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. Look at the Ten Commandments. You can't even do that basic fundamentals of morality, let alone the complexities of all of our life situations. You can't fix yourselves. This is a burden you cannot bear. Friends, instead of coveting something to save you, the gospel says, trust someone to save you. And not just in the ultimate sense, but in the daily sense, in the everyday sense. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See what Paul's doing? He's, he's reasoning from the greater to the lesser. If God is willing to allow his own son to pay for your failure to keep his law, isn't he going to do everything else that you need? Isn't he going to do everything else for you? That's what he said to the Galatians. Remember when we studied Galatians? Chapter 4, verse 4 is a powerful verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. If God was willing to provide you with that, don't you think he's willing to provide everything you actually need? The real question, the million-dollar question, is are you willing to trust him Are you willing to trust Him with the situations and circumstances of your life, or are you going to try and continue to covet and do it on your own and fix it on your own? That's what the Tenth Commandment is getting at. You, You can go through life coveting, friends, or you can go through life trusting, but you will not do both. You cannot do both. You're either going to go through life trusting in your heavenly Father, or you're going to go through life coveting everything you think you need to fix your life. You can't do both. They're mutually exclusive because they're orientations of the heart. It's just like the New Testament talks about. You can either love people or you can fear people, but you're not going to do both. And you need to choose. Am I going to love people or am I going to fear them? Am I going to trust God or am I going to covet You go through life doing one, but you cannot do both. The cross is proof that God provides. Coveting is a lie that will only lead you to deeper into your sense of need and want. See, so it's very fitting that the Ten Commandments ends with this issue of coveting and gets us to look right back in our heart because this is a question of will I trust God for everything or am I going to try and fix everything by getting what I think I need? And friends, One is so exhausting compared to the other, right? This is why I think a fitting way to end not only this morning but our series 
is Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Let me close with this. Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this series in the Ten Commandments and how we keep looking to how Jesus is the fulfillment of these things, Father, even this commandment, we think of Philippians chapter 2, when Paul said that, that Jesus did not look at his equality with God, his place in heaven as something to be grasped, something to covet, but he gave it away so that those who have no right to be there have the privilege of being there. Father, help us to see that life is not about the things that we get as if the things of this world were going to satisfy us because they don't. We were made for you in eternity, and our hearts will never be still until we realize that. Father, thank you that yet again you remind us by the gracious opportunity to gather with your people the weekly rhythm and routine of being reminded in word, song, and fellowship that we were not made for the things of this world, and we were made for another world. Father, yet until we plug into that reality, we could never be truly effective here. So, Father, help us to be heavenly-minded so that we can be earthly good. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.